Genesis chapter 12 this morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you very much. Genesis chapter 12 this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 10 and go through the end of the chapter this morning. Last week we saw Abram take these giant faith-fueled steps. I mean, huge things. Huge faith-filled steps of obedience that saw him leave his homeland and, and, and that took him to a foreign land that's 800 miles from his homeland. And he gets to this new place and he finds out when he gets there that it's already occupied with people. He's going to have to deal with that. But when we left Abram last week, we saw him traveling through the promised land, building altars everywhere he's going, and, and he is riding high and everything is going according to plan, right? Everything is hunky-dory for Abram. And, and, and we get this idea that Abram is like larger than life. You ever, you ever read the Old Testament and some of the accounts you read of people there and it's like they're larger than life? I could, never, I could never live the kind of life that they lived. But there's something that strikes me when I read through the Old Testament, and really all people in Scripture is, we only see little snippets of their life. Do you realize that? We only see little snippets of their life. It's like we drop into their life at this point, and, and we, we don't know anything about Abram's first years, do we? We know nothing about what it was like. We know nothing about his growing up, where he was raised, any of that. We see some of the highs. We see a lot of the lows of these people. But let's be honest. These are men and women that are in the scriptures that, that deal with day-to-day -day pressures just like you do. They deal with the cares of life. They deal with living a day-in and day-out existence. For example, Abram had herdsmen. Herdsmen that had to find places to feed and water his animals he had to make sure that his animals weren't harming somebody else's property or that they weren't doing damage to, to somebody else. He had a wife to care for. He had a nephew that he was responsible for. And he had a servant workforce that he had to provide for. Do you think he had the same cares of life that you and I face? He did. He may not have had a car like you and I do that breaks down, but he had animals that got sick that he had to take care of, and some of them died, and then all of a sudden he's got to figure out what he's going to do to replace these animals. He dealt with the same things that you and I deal with. He had to deal with interpersonal issues. Do you think his servants always got along? Do you think that they always were just like in perfect harmony? Or did they go, go back to Abram and say this, man, that guy who you have in charge of the donkeys, he's just a real, don't fill in the blank. Some of you were thinking it. He's a real idiot. Right? Abram's an amazing man, but let's not make him larger than life, Okay? Because when we do that, it doesn't make him relatable. And our text today makes Abram very relatable. So we come to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. And we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. He's not just buttering her up. 
okay? This is not just like, sweetie, sweetie, you're so pretty. She was a strikingly beautiful woman, and he knew this. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Father, in the brief moments that we have now, fix our attention on your word. Spirit, we're counting on you to guide us into all truth, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. We desperately need it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have made this mistake in your life? That when, when you're walking with Jesus, when you're following God, you're taking steps of obedience, and God is seemingly blessing, that, that you get it in your head that everything is working just fine, and you may be even tempted to think, you would never say this out loud, but be tempted to think, this Christian life isn't so hard at all. You ever gotten to that point? And then all of a sudden... There's this reality of every one of our existences that God brings testing to us. God brings testing. Just because you and I are obedient, just because we utilize the faith that God gives to us that we saw last week, and just because we act in obedience in that faith does not guarantee that you and I will be exempt from test and trial. In fact, I think you can say it this way. If you are a believer, God is going to test you for your own good. He's going to do it. And if he's going to do it, we better recognize that and we better be ready for it. Would you agree with me? Abram's faith journey has now turned into a furnace of testing. We read in verse 10 that there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And, and, and here is Abram. Put yourself in Abram's shoes. You have obediently followed God. You've left behind everything that you knew, that, that you were familiar with, everything that you were comfortable with. And make no mistake, Abram's just as much of a creature of comfort that you and I are today. Okay? He liked his homeland. He liked, he liked knowing where he could buy his grain for his animals. He liked knowing where he, could, where he could take them out and put them in the field. He liked his neighbors. He liked everything the way it was. And then God uprooted him from that and took him somewhere else. Some of us are wrestling with this in our own lives right now. We don't like what's happening to our Johnstown. Anybody in that boat with me? We don't like it. Why can't it just stay the way it used to be? 
Because as much as life goes on, there's going to be change, right? There's going to be change. The land of promise all of a sudden doesn't hold much promise for Abram. And we have to ask ourselves, did God make a mistake in taking Abram to the land of promise, or is it still just as much the land of promise? I think I'm going to go with God on this. God doesn't make a mistake, does he, church? He's taken him to this land, and, and he knew when he sent Abram to this land and when he led him to this land that there was going to be a famine in this land. Make no mistake, God will lead us right into hardship, church. Not because he enjoys watching us squirm, not because we're his little, you know, mad scientist experiment down here on earth. I wonder what will happen if I drop this hot oil on them or whatever. God's not playing that kind of game. God's doing this for Abram's good. God's doing this to accomplish his purpose. God's doing this because God is God and we are not. What's interesting is, is that Abram makes a decision. See it there in verse 10? There's a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Abram makes a decision. And there's some interesting points in this decision I want to consider because our first reaction, I think, is this. Oh, he goes to Egypt. That's bad. Never go to Egypt. Well, let's think about this. First of all, if you want to put this on the good side column, where does Abram choose not to go back to? He doesn't go back to his homeland, does he? He's not throwing it all in on the dream here. He's not saying, you know what? Thanks, God, that was a fun ride, but now we've, got, now we've got a famine here. Guess what? I'm going back to Ur. He's not pulling a Peter here and going back to fishing, right? He's reacting. He decides to go to Egypt because that's where food is. They have this thing there in Egypt called the Nile River, and it's always wet, right? And it feeds, it feeds a lot of pasture land. In fact, it's been uncovered in archaeological digs and an inscription from about this time frame that, that was written on, on a stone in Egypt, and it said this, certain of foreigners who know not how they may live have come. Their countries are starving. It was pretty common for the world around that area when there was famine for people to go to Egypt because they knew they could find food there. This was a decision of many people. But you may say, Pastor Dan, I've heard it preached tonight, and I even know as I read the Bible that Egypt is always a type of the world, and we should never run to the world. True, right? We should never run to the world, right? But if Egypt is always a type in the world, I would submit to you two examples that, that probably you need to consider. Later on in the book of Genesis, Jacob is told, don't be afraid to go to Egypt, Right? Same circumstance, there's a famine. Elsewhere, like in Matthew chapter 2, Joseph and Mary have a little baby whose name is, and where does the angel tell them to go? Egypt. Egypt. You say, well, wait a minute, I've got, an, I've got a counter exhibit. Isaiah 31.1, woe to those who go to Egypt for help. It does say that in the word. 
I bring this all up to say this. I'm not sure we can indict Abram just for going to Egypt. But him going to Egypt is pretty instructive to us and it's pretty helpful. We can say this. There's no record here in the scriptures that God directed him to go to Egypt, is there? There's no record that he's directed to go there. And what we have here, I believe, is a decision that's made in fear. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to back that up here in a second. The fear is a basic human need fear. None of us wants to starve to death. Am I right? Abram doesn't want to starve to death. He has, he has people he has to take care of. He has animals that are his livelihood. He doesn't want them to starve to, death, to starve to death. So he's making a decision out of fear. He's acting out of instinct rather than out of obedience. And that happens to us, doesn't it? We act out of instinct and not out of obedience. Let me put it this way. I don't believe that Abram is denying God's greatness here. I think he's forgetting God's greatness here. And there's a difference. He's not denying that God is great. He's not denying that God has led him to this point. He's not denying that God has done some amazing things. But in the moment when he finds out that there's a famine and he's worried about taking care of all of these people, much less himself, he makes a decision. Some of us might put it this way. He makes a business decision at this point, right? He makes a business decision. We're going to go where there's food. I want to remind us, God brought Abram to Canaan knowing that there would be adversity there. Did he not? He brought Abram to Canaan knowing there would be adversity there. And I can't stress this enough. How many of you are like me? When you encounter adversity in your life, you want to coil up in the fetal position and say, oh God, why are you doing this to me? Anybody else? Like, I'm the only person that's had to deal with this. Abram, I'm the only person that's had to deal with the famine. Obedient faith will bring us to times of adversity. It will bring us to times of trial. It will bring us to times of testing. The key, though, is to continue in obedient faith. If obedient faith brought you to the time of testing, we try to think of ourselves as creatures of logic. If I was obedient in my faith and it brought me to this, this thing right here, I better change what I'm obedient to, right? No. God brings us by obedient faith to times of testing to harden in us that we need to continue to be obedient and faithful to him and go through the trial. And even when the test is, as the end of verse 10 says, severe. Even when the test is severe. I mentioned to you that his decision is not a faith-filled decision. How can I be sure of that statement? Because... Once you start making decisions out of fear, you will continue to make decisions out of fear. Have you found that to be true in your life? One fearful decision usually leads to other fear-filled decisions. And notice, secondly, as we see Abram stumble, this fear-filled decision that Abram makes. Look with me at verse 11. So Abram's made this decision, they're gonna go to Egypt, and it says when they're about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. 
Again, he's not flirting with her. He's stating the obvious. She is strikingly beautiful. How do I know she's strikingly beautiful? Because when she gets into Egypt, she is noticed right away, right? And she's not just noted, noticed by the construction workers on the corner. She's noticed by Pharaoh's people. One of the duties of being in, in Pharaoh's house was is that you were responsible for filling his harem, now, I don't know about you, if I'm the most powerful guy in the world, I'm not asking my guys to go pick the ugliest women. At least one guy laughed at that. <laughs> and he's going to pay the price with his wife later. Oh, she's not with you. That's why you laughed. <sighs> Mental note. <laughs> Am I right, men? Are you picking the ugliest women in the world? Look at your wife and say, I picked the most beautiful one. Do it right now. Do it right now. Say it. The guys in charge of filling his harem, they notice how beautiful she is. Abram knows what he's dealing with here. And notice what he says, verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they'll let you live. Is that a faith-filled statement or a fear-filled statement, church? You sure about that, church? Yeah, that is totally motivated by fear. Is it a legitimate fear? Yeah, it is a legitimate fear. But nevertheless, it's a fear. And so, verse 13, here's the plan. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. There's a big, big problem in what he has just said. You know what it is? Who is, who is he most interested in taking care of here, his wife or himself? He doesn't give a rip about what happens to his wife, does he? He doesn't care. You got a lie for me to protect me. So now, they've got this plan, but, but I want to, you to see something here. This isn't just a plan that they had come up with on the fly. Go forward in Genesis to Genesis chapter 20. I want you to see this. We get some important details in Genesis chapter 20, because by the way, spoiler alert, this isn't, this isn't the only time Abram's going to try to pull this stunt, Okay? Abram deals with the sin of lying. You know what? Take comfort in this. No, don't take glory in this or whatever. Take comfort in this. Even Father Abram, who had many sons, he dealt with besetting sins. His was the sin of lying. He, pay, he played fast and loose with the truth. Because in, in Genesis chapter 20, he's going to do the same thing with a guy named Abimelech, right? Verse 2, it says, Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. But we get some history in this. We get some history in this. Look down at verse 13. This is Abram talking to Abimelech, and he says, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Okay, way back, 
in Ur. When God led me away from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. He is my brother. Why can he say that? Go back up to verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. In other words, she's my half-sister. It's basically a half-truth, is it not? Literally a half-truth. But understand this. This was a plan that Abram had cooked up long ago. This was his plan. And here's the thing I want to, to point out to us. <laughs> as soon as you and I start making fear-filled decisions and we stray away from what God's path is for us and our obedience, we will go back to our old ways, the things that we were comfortable with. He's going to go back to the old lie, isn't he? He's going to go back to the old lie. And, and it's, it, it's natural for him. He just slides right back into it. Do you ever get frustrated, friend? Do you ever get frustrated believing, friend, with how easy you can slide back into the old ways? Here's Abram sliding back into the old ways. There's this old quote, and I love it. And this is so true of what's now happening with Abram and Sarai here. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Is that not true? And it's what's happening now with Abram. Abram's plan was this. Go back to chapter 12. His plan was this. We're going to go in there. We're going to lie about this. People will just treat us as brother and sister. We will live there long enough to get the food that we need, and then whenever the famine's over, we are getting out of Egypt. Okay, just in and out, everything is going to be just fine. Brother and sister platonically living together in a tent with our servants. Right? Except there's a problem with this. She really was beautiful, right? She really was beautiful. So much so... That when Pharaoh's princes see her, verse 15, they talk her up to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, hey, find out about her, find out her background. They lie, they say that she's a sister, and they're like, man, you are ripe for marriage. Come on, baby. Right? And on top of it, on top of it, Abram's really in a conundrum because according to verse 16, he really benefits from this lie, doesn't he? He gets paid for telling a lie. Sounds like a politician. Oh. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Gave Abram sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants. But here's the kicker. He not only gave him the males, he gave them females, and females are far more important when it comes to servants and to animals. Why? Female servants will produce what? More servants. Female animals will produce what? More animals. Pharaoh really likes, and he really sees the value in Sarah, and he wants to remunerate Abram really well for this. The other thing is, 
Female donkeys, it was well known, were far better to control than male donkeys, right? So they were much more dependable. And quite honestly, the camels are pretty cool. I know we think of this time that everybody had a camel and they were doing caravans. Camels were not that common and not very many people had camels. Think of it this way. Not only did he just give him something to travel on like a Chevy, he just gave him a Ferrari to travel on. He just gave him a camel. It's a status symbol. And so now we see Abram benefiting, and what is Sarah doing? She's suffering, isn't she? The language is kind of vague here. It says here in verse 19 that Pharaoh took her for his wife. That can mean a couple different things in the original language. Could it mean that, that he actually had slept with her? It could mean that. It also could mean that he just put her in his, in his harem. Normally, when you were put in somebody's harem, it took a while for you to gain trust to actually be brought into the bedroom of the person whose harem you were in. We have no idea how far this got. But can you imagine just the fear in Sarah as she's there in the harem? And, and, and wives, you can relate to this. Can you imagine what she's saying under her breath about her husband? If I ever get out of this, right? This was not part of the plan, was it? This was not in Sarah's or Abram's mind. This wasn't, sin never goes according to plan. Can I say it again? Sin never goes according to plan. I don't care how old or young you are in this room, you think you have sin under control, you never have it under control, it's controlling you. And it never goes according to plan. I will just tell this one lie here, all I have to do is tell this one lie, and then we're done. It never works that way, does it? I'm just going to do this one thing here, and I'll never be tempted to do it again, I just want to know what it feels like to do it. It never works that way, does it? Would you agree with me that all of a sudden the famine back in Canaan doesn't seem nearly as severe now for Abram? Maybe that test from God wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. There's another interesting thing to note here, and just an observation in comparing the first nine verses with the last 11 verses of Scripture here. In this chapter, everywhere Abram went last Sunday, what was he doing? You remember? Building altars and making the Lord's name great. Do you suppose he's now building altars down in Egypt? I don't think so. There's no record of any altars being built here. In fact, God had promised that he was going to make Abram's name great, and now Abram's name is going to get dragged through the mud, isn't it? And rightfully so. And rightfully so. What's Abram to do? He's lost his wife. Put yourself here. Before you even look at verse 17, but the Lord, okay? Which changes everything, right? Before you look at verse 17, put yourself in Abram's shoes. He's now got his wife. His legitimate wife is in Pharaoh's harem. He has now benefited greatly financially from this. He, he's not going to leave Egypt without his wife, but to, now to say that she is his wife, it pretty much is going to be off with his head, right? What's he supposed to do? 
And isn't that what sin does to us, friends? It puts us in this hopeless position that we can never get out of, seemingly, right? We feel trapped. We feel trapped. Even in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 17, though, you can find the grace of God, can't you? But God, <laughs> but the Lord, okay? Just, if you write in your Bible, put next to that, this is God's grace right here. Is God obligated now to do this? In a way, he is, because God is a faithful God, and God has made promises, and now God's going to have to honor his promise to Abram, isn't he? Not because Abram has earned it, but because God is faithful. And here's the thing, folks. When you and I sin, it's not because we've earned God's forgiveness, but God has to be faithful to his word. And because he's faithful to his word, he's going to forgive your sin. And because God is faithful, he's going to honor the promise that he gave to Abram at the beginning of this chapter. And here's what he does. <laughs> he afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. That word plagues is an interesting word. That word plagues many times, most times in the scriptures, deals with some kind of skin condition, okay? Can you imagine some kind of rash or boil so bad that it just totally afflicts you? You can't think of anything else. All you want to do is just, I want to scratch it all off, right? He afflicts Pharaoh with this, and not just Pharaoh, Pharaoh's whole house with these plagues. And I don't know how he impresses on, on Pharaoh's mind that it has to do with Sarai, but he does. Because Pharaoh realizes this all has to do with this woman over here. She's the problem. She's the problem. Notice God says, that he intervenes because of Sarai, Abram's wife. I take some comfort in that. Sometimes we, as human beings, we make decisions that harm other human beings. Sometimes in a marriage, we make decisions that harm our spouses, don't we? You know who's always paying attention to that? God is. And even when we screw it up, husbands, God is going to act on behalf graciously for our wives. Isn't that a comforting thought? And vice versa. God overwhelms Pharaoh's household with these plagues, which he uses to reveal to Pharaoh that Abram has lied to him. There's a point here that we all need to understand, and we need to see this. The Bible says, be sure your sin will what? find you out. Our sin will come to light. It's going to be revealed. And in many ways, Pharaoh shows more character than Abram ever did, doesn't he? Pharaoh's the most powerful person in the world. Could he have kept Sarai as his wife? I guess if he wanted to have the skin condition the rest of his life, he could have, right? But Abram is rebuked humiliated by Pharaoh, and he's expelled from Egypt. But I want to point something out here at this point. The cost of sin is high, 
very high. And it's not just the personal humiliation of Abram here. It's not just the fact that he got sent out from where he was and he loses the ability to take care of his animals and his, and his servants and his family. That's, that's high enough. But go back with me to verse 16. One of the things that Abram got was female servants. How many of you ever heard of a woman named Hagar? How many of you know what nationality Hagar is? Anyone want to take a guess? What nationality is Hagar? She's Egyptian. Where do you think Abram got Hagar? Hagar is a living reminder to Abram for the rest of Abram's life of the price of his sin for lying about Sarai. We're going to find out as we go forward in Genesis that Hagar is going to be a thorn in his side the whole way through. And in fact, Hagar's offspring is going to be a thorn in Abram's offspring for the rest of all time. You want to know why we've got problems in Israel and Palestine? Abram and Hagar. It's not far-fetched for us to see that this bad decision followed Abram all of his life. Did Abram get forgiveness? Yes, I'm sure he did. But sin has consequences, and those consequences stay with us. A couple things I want you to take home from this this morning. I know you're shocked. It's 10 minutes till 12, and I'm talking about taking things home. Don't pass out. Stay with me. Number one, Abram is faithless, but Abram's God is faithful. Let me say that again. Abram is faithless in this, but Abram's God is faithful. You and I will be faithless, but our God will always be faithful. Abram was a man of faith, but even men and women of faith will act out of fear at times, will they not? But God is always going to be faithful. We sang about it. He will hold us fast. If it's up to us to hold ourselves, are we going to be able to do it? If it's up to us to continually be faithful, are we going to be able to do it? Has any of us in this room been 100% faithful this last seven-day period since we were last together? Not one of us. And that's okay because He's going to be faithful. He's going to keep his promise to Abram, not because Abram is so faithful, but because he himself is so faithful. And I want to just tell you this, and I want to free you from this bondage of thinking that you and I have to be 100% faithful all the time. You can't do it, but he always will be faithful. Take home number one is this. You and I are going to be faithless, but our God is always going to be faithful. Take home number two. I got to stress it to us again. Trials are a part of God's plan. In fact, I want you to hear your own mouth say it. Say it with me. Trials are a part of God's plan. Is that true? It's very true. 
James tells us this, that God uses trials to bring us to a place of maturity. So every time we go through a trial, just understand, I need to grow up, (laughs) right? Every time I get in a trial, God's telling me, grow up, Scarberry. Maybe that's why I get so many trials. I'm just a little kid. Trials teach us God's faithfulness. And they're used by God to make us more like Christ. None of us are going to go out of here saying this, okay, God, just dump them on me. Bring me some more trials, right? But here's the reality. God loves us enough to give us trials because he loves us enough to make us to be like Jesus. Let's take home number two. Trials are a part of God's plan. Third and final take home is this. When trials come, resist, absolutely resist the urge to trust your own wisdom. (laughs) Resist the urge to trust your own wisdom. Because here's the thing, when trials come, our our wisdom is going to be influenced by fear, is it not? There is this great hymn that I just want to share with you. If I'd have been thinking, I would have, if I'd have been thinking like ahead of time, I would have asked the worship team to teach it to us. But there's this great hymn, and it is filled with so much truth, and I realize it's not scripture, but man, it is so rooted in scripture. I just want to give the words of it to you. The hymn is called When Trials Come, and it says this, when trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near, to fire a faith worth more than gold, and there his faithfulness is told. Within the night, I know your peace. The breath of God brings strength to me, and new each morning mercies flow as treasures of the darkness grow. Do you ever think of the night as a place where you're going to find treasures? One of the greatest treasures you'll find in a dark night of faith is this, is that you realize that your God is faithful. The hymn writer goes on to say this, I turn to wisdom, not my own. For every battle you have known, is it true? Can Christ sympathize with every battle we have ever faced? Is that not the record of Hebrews? My confidence will rest in you. Your love endures. Your ways are good. And I love this verse. When I am weary with the cost, how many of you get weary in trials? How many of you are like, it just seems like every time I get my head above the water, another one comes. When I am weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross. Why is God giving us trials? Because he wants us to look directly at Christ himself. Who for the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross. So in its shadow, I shall run till he completes the work begun. And like any good hymn, it leaves us with the hope of this. One day all things will be made new. I'll see the hope you've called me to. And in your kingdom paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. Here's the mistake we make. Here's the mistake we make. This is a take home for, this is a bonus, and I promise I'm done. The mistake we make is this. We think that the best life that God has for us is this life here on earth, do we not? And we orient ourselves to that. 
Here's the thing I can promise you. I can promise you this. You're going to have trials in this life. You will never have a trial in glory. I expected a better response for that. Does that not fire you up, church? You will have trials on this earth. You're going to have adversity. You're going to face temptations. You're going to give in. There's going to be times you feel like quitting. There's going to be times that you just feel like you are the worst Christian ever because you probably are. You will never experience that in His glory. Never. That's why this life is not made to be held on to. And all the things that pull for us in this life are not worth at all. Don't even compare to the glory that will be revealed to us one, and in us one day in heaven. These are just minor irritations that seem really big, right? That hurt really deep. That cripple us at times but they don't compare to the glory that will be revealed to in us in Christ Jesus to come. Father, give us that perspective, I pray. May we be like the patriarchs of old, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. May we not settle for these earthly cities, these kingdoms, these things that are so trivial and that will not satisfy us, will not meet our needs. May we set our hopes on something far greater, far better, eternity with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.